0: Welcome to the International Civil Society Centre's Futures and Innovation podcast. I'm Vicky Tung, the Programme Manager for Futures and Innovation here at the centre. Our annual innovation report brings into focus innovations that can benefit international civil society organisations, and also shows in turn how these organisations are benefiting society in challenging or complex contemporary contexts. This podcast episode forms part of our 2020 edition on civil society innovation and urban inclusion, highlighting how a range of organisations are working in cities around the world to deliver inclusive solutions for whole communities or particularly marginalised or vulnerable groups of residents. In each of these podcast case stories, we really want to lift the lid on these innovations and hear directly from the people at the heart of designing and delivering them. Today's case study is one where the successful innovation, at its core, is delivering data to enable decision-making which matches the speed, scale, and dynamism of the urban challenge and creates a means of bringing different city agencies and community actors together around a shared system-wide framework to better understand and solve the problem. Today I'm pleased to be joined by Jake Maguire, the co-director of the Built for Zero campaign at the US-based nonprofit Community Solutions. Thanks for joining me today, Jake.
1: It's good to be here. Thanks for having me.
0: So, we first bumped into you at the UN World Urban Forum back in February this year, which feels like a lifetime ago. <laughs>
1: <laughs> a lot's then... changed since then.
0: Yeah, it really has. Uh, since then, I've heard other interviews with you, but I, it's really nice to finally have this opportunity to talk to you about this work. Can you start with introducing Community Solutions and what you do,
1: please? We're, we're US based. <laughs> nonprofit, we increasingly work with communities around the world as well. Uh, And our goal is to end homelessness um, in a way that is is lasting and that doesn't leave anybody Behind, I think maybe one of the things that makes us a little unique in that work is uh, historically uh, solutions to homelessness have have been seen as largely structural, so we need just greater investment in affordable housing, things like that, and yes, we agree one hundred percent with those things, but I think we 've also identified. Uh, a key component of solving this problem that is about how different systems overlap and work together uh, and specifically the kind of data and problem-solving skills communities need to make sure that structural interventions like uh, funding for housing are actually getting all the way to the ground and getting to the right people uh, so that the most vulnerable homeless folks are being moved inside. Um, We've had a lot of success with that approach. We work with about 82 communities in the U.S. right now. Uh, and um, we're probably by the time this publishes expect that we'll have announced um, that about 20 uh, of those communities have now gotten to zero for at least one key population uh, among their homeless populations. So um, we're really heartened by what we see uh, and feel like we're, we're on to something uh, with the communities that we're supporting.
0: So in a nutshell, what is the big idea behind Built for Zero? Yeah,
1: Built for Zero is uh, our largest uh, effort, our largest program, and it is uh, a national effort in the U.S. uh, supporting, as I said, about 82 U.S. communities. Uh, Communities are sort of defined differently from place to place. It could be a, a city. In some places, it might make more sense that it's a county or a larger geography. And all those communities basically uh, come together around a shared aim, which is to get to zero on some of the worst forms of homelessness, Uh, specifically veteran homelessness. In the US, we have a a large problem with military veterans uh, returning home from war and ending up on our streets because they're not adequately supported. And chronic homelessness, which is really long-term homelessness among really the sickest uh, or most disabled individuals on our streets. Uh, These two populations represent leverage points uh, for ultimately addressing all homelessness. Uh, So they're just kind of a starting place for communities to learn what it would take. Uh, But every community that comes into the initiative agrees to work uh, on those two populations first. And then as they make progress on those populations, uh, we help them begin to scale that progress out uh, to other populations like families, or young people uh, or other single individuals uh, who may be dealing with less vulnerability. So it's really a way of shrinking the problem down to something manageable as a way to get started and then using the key lessons uh, that you learn working on that population uh, to begin to end homelessness for everyone.
0: Great, so can you help us better understand the scale and dimensions of the problem you're solving there in the US? Um, Starting with some numbers around homelessness. Well, you've hit
1: upon your first kind of loaded question (laughs) because the answer, I guess like like so many things, is it depends how you measure. Uh, And this is actually one of the things that makes Bill for Zero perhaps a bit unique. Traditionally in the United States, as with many communities around the world actually, local teams are required if they receive federal funding assistance for homelessness to go out once a year and uh, anonymously tally All of the people on their streets that they believe might be experiencing homelessness. This in the US is called the annual point in time count, uh, and it is uh, mandated by Congress for anyone receiving funding from our our federal government. And it is not terribly sophisticated. Uh, What it basically produces is kind of an anonymous count once a year. Uh, you, You sort of take that tally and you send it into the federal department of housing and urban development. They do a bunch of statistical extrapolation that unfortunately no one really understands. It's a bit of a black box. And about 11 months later, uh, you get a a formal number back from the federal government saying, this is how many people we think were probably experiencing homelessness in your community 11 months ago. And then that number is sort of aggregated with all of the other numbers in the, the, the country. Uh, to produce some sort of national estimate, and that national estimate uh, for several years now has been hovering somewhere around, you know, five hundred and forty to five hundred and sixty thousand people, so a little over half a million people on any given night uh, that are believed to be experiencing homelessness. But you can sort of imagine <laughs> the the problem that this way of counting or accounting for homelessness sets up, uh, which is, this is sort of not a static problem, it's a very dynamic problem. New people become homeless every day. People exit homelessness every day. People are moving from community to community. Many people are um, very creative in their efforts not to be found because they, they maybe are dealing with mental illness or other things that might make them want to be left alone. And so trying to sort of assess and monitor and respond to such a dynamic and complex problem like homelessness by taking you know, what what basically amounts to a, a sort of rough estimate once a year, leaves communities in a position where they just don't have the kind of sophisticated understanding of how this problem is changing over time that would actually allow them to start to make progress on the issue. So they need to understand in real time or as close to real time as possible how many people are homeless, who they are, you know, their names and their, their social history. So you can start to understand what kinds of resources they might be eligible for that might help them. And also how that number is changing over time. This allows communities the ability to start to make much more sophisticated decisions about how to move money around, how they might adjust programs in their communities uh, to ultimately drive that number down to zero over time. Uh, so it's a it's a bit of a, a complicated answer to what probably seems like a very simple question, just how many people are experiencing homelessness. But the answer is, you know, if you count once a year uh, anonymously, you find somewhere around half a million. Uh, when you look at homelessness in real time, over time in communities, you find much more nuanced uh, patterns and uh, ways that this number is changing on a pretty regular basis.
0: Yeah, I've got to say, the way you described doesn't actually sound particularly inclusive, which is what we're focusing on. It doesn't actually involve talking to people, right? So uh, so clearly something something else is needed to, to understand the problem. We were doing, um, a couple of years ago, some
1: some really in-depth research in about 20 communities, deep, deep qualitative interviewing of people experiencing homelessness to try to understand their pathways into homelessness. You know, what, what led you here? How did you become part of the inflow in this community? And I spent personally, uh, you know, over 10 hours uh, over the course of two to three days, just sitting with um, a few folks experiencing chronic homelessness in one community in the state of Virginia, just asking them to, to you know, just walk me through your story again. I wanna make sure I'm really understanding every place where there might have been potential to intervene. And then at the end of every one of those interviews, I would ask what turned out to be the most revealing question, which was, do you know you know, regardless of what I've seen, is there something that you think personally could have prevented you from becoming homeless in those final weeks right before you lost your housing? You know, what, if anything, could someone have done for you, have given you, uh, have supported you with that, in your view, would have prevented you from landing on the streets? And the first thing that was shocking to me was every single person had that idea ready, uh, you know, within 30 seconds, they knew exactly what they would have needed. Uh, they knew that when they were at risk of homelessness and they couldn't find ever, anyone to give it to them. The second thing that was so shocking to me was I did not hear, I was not offered a single idea from those individuals that would have cost more than $500. $500? $500. $500.
0: Wow.
1: You know, to to, to avoid in some cases, you know, 10, 20, 30 years now on the streets. I mean, one guy said, you know, my truck was impounded. I fell behind on my truck payment and it was impounded. And I didn't have the money, you know, $280 to get it out of the impound lot. And if I had had that money, I would have gotten in my truck and I would have driven home to my family two states away and they would have taken me in. But because I couldn't get my truck out of impound, I ended up homeless. And then the situation just got worse and worse and worse from there. Another woman said, I was a victim of domestic violence. I had to flee my home. And when I fled my home with my abusive husband still in that home, I, I left all my documents behind. You know, I just ha- I had to get out of there. I didn't have time to grab all my things. And what I needed was money to rent a, a moving truck and a, you know a, a security assistant for one day, somebody who could go back to that house with me and make sure I was safe. Well, I got my birth certificate, my social security card, those kinds of things. Uh, But because she couldn't do that, it took her 15 years to be able to prove that she was eligible for any kind of public program because she couldn't get her, her identity documentation in order. I mean, these are not complicated problems to solve, right? But if you want to solve them, you have to know people by name and dig into their stories and sort of understand what it is that they know they need. And then the question just becomes, do you have systems in your community that are flexible enough to respond to those needs? But, but that's an easy easier challenge, right? If we know what people need, if we have proven ways to get people out of homelessness, we in the, the nonprofit sector are very good at designing programs to maximize the effectiveness of delivering those interventions, right? But if we don't actually know what people need or if we just think we do, but we don't actually have good enough information on those individuals to really be sure, um, then we end up doing what we've done for years, which is we throw you know, dollar after dollar at this problem and nothing seems to work. And eventually we just start blaming the people and saying, I guess they don't want help. I guess they just want to be homeless. And uh, we, we all agree to learn to live with it. So I think that's you know, a bit about the, the power this data has to transform policy, but also practice in service of really reducing homelessness. And it it really gets at some of the core questions in our field, you know, are we willing to listen to people closest to the problem and build systems that can provide them with the things that they need? And then are we we willing to bring some accountability to how we're delivering on those things uh, over
0: time? Could you say a bit more about some of the different ways in which people experience homelessness and vulnerability, please? We see,
1: uh, on average uh, in communities it, somewhere between 60 and 70% of people who fall into homelessness are you know like myself or I'm going to make an assumption here about you Vicky that you know if 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 one of us fell into homelessness uh, I would hope uh, because we have networks uh, and sort of a community around us it wouldn't be long before a friend or a family member said oh my goodness this is unacceptable you know sleep on my couch or i have an extra room you know why don't you come stay with me while we figure this out um, that is most people's situation in the United States. Uh, you know, when they when they experience homelessness, it is because of a unexpected crisis. It tends to be very short term, and within a few weeks, uh, they resolve their own situation by drawing on their own networks and their own problem solving uh, abilities. And there's obviously a strong incentive to do that. You know, people are are pretty good problem solvers when um, you know that the, it's the difference between being able to sleep inside or Uh, having no roof over your head. You know, there is a a smaller group of people, um, somewhere between 15 and 20% of folks typically, that tends to need um, some kind of system intervention uh, as opposed to just being able to escape this problem on their own. Uh, But that intervention is often pretty light touch. We talk about uh, here in the States, we use the phrase rapid rehousing often. So just kind of a a short-term cash rental subsidy, Uh, that, you know, maybe it's just going to last a few months, maybe it's going to taper off over the course of those few months, and a basic connection to some simple services like case management, or, or, you know, somebody to just kind of meet with you and help you get back on your feet and take advantage of other services that already exist in your community. That is, you know, for this sort of smaller group of people, uh, all that is needed. And, And what we find, by and large, is those people never return to homelessness. So if you're tracking, you know, so far, just to repeat, you've got maybe 70% or so of people that really don't need any help, uh, 15 or 20% of folks uh, that need a little bit of help, but not very much. And then that leaves this this sort of much smaller cohort, uh, the group that is left, uh, who tend to be extremely vulnerable. And this is the group that we refer to as people experiencing chronic homelessness. Uh, these are folks who have been homeless a long time. In the US, it's typically a year or more. Uh, th- there are a couple other ways you can sort of meet that time definition, but uh, that's the most common way to understand it, Uh, and that have some kind of serious health or or disabling condition. This could be a chronic medical issue, it could be severe and persistent mental illness or substance abuse. What we know from the data about this group is that but for a a fairly intensive and long term intervention, uh, they are very unlikely ever to escape homelessness. It is not uncommon to find people in this category. Who have been on the streets 15, 20. I have personally met people mm-hmm. who have been almost over 30 years oh. uh, because their needs are so significant and no one has sort of made it their job to go out and see to it that the, this group gets housed. So as you start to segment out this population, you start to realize how valuable uh, a nuanced uh, data set can really be in helping you make sure that you're not. You know, over subsidizing people that actually maybe don't need any help at all—they just need you to help them get back in touch with a family member—and and similarly, you're not looking at someone who maybe needs a, a significant intervention, uh, you know, and just giving them a pat on the back and wishing them good luck. But you can start to triage people much the way we do in a hospital emergency room into the appropriate forms of response for the kind of homelessness that they are experiencing. Um, There are a couple other ways this segmentation tends to play out. Um, In the United States, it it is also true that people of color, but especially Black Americans and Native Americans are dramatically more likely to experience homelessness uh, than their peers. And and this is because of the ongoing systemic racism that is baked into uh, virtually every public system and frankly, just public life. Uh, here in the United States that that make these groups much, much more vulnerable uh, to falling into homelessness. But similarly, once they become homeless, uh, they tend to spend longer periods of time experiencing homelessness. In other words, it takes them longer to get back into housing. They are prioritized for uh, intensive resources and support at lower rates than white years. So there is a lot of bias um, baked into these systems, even among people that you know have no intention uh, of enacting that kind of bias. But these are the way these systems have been set up and designed over time. And because we've never done the work of really dismantling and sort of undesigning them, uh, they continue to perpetuate these racist outcomes. But again, if you can't see in your data on a regular basis, and this is where we're starting to move on built for zero. You know, what are the demographic indicators uh, of people experiencing homelessness in our community? At what percentage of these folks uh, are Black or Native? How does that stack up to uh, our general population? Are people being prioritized for housing interventions at disproportionately high or low rates? If so, what can we do about it?
0: What kind of changes can be unlocked by person specific data?
1: We often say, uh, in this work, you cannot end homelessness in a community until you know every person experiencing and finding uh, a- anonymity in homelessness turns out to be um, the real killer here because we have sort of allowed homeless people to sort of blend into our landscape. And then similarly, we've sort of turned them into statistics instead of naming them and identifying the individual challenges each person mm-hmm. is going through. It has enabled a certain level of inaction or a level of learning to live with this problem instead of resolving to solve and eradicate it. So let me talk about person-specific data and and what a community can do with it. You know, we we call it a by-name list. So your real-time accounting of everyone experiencing homelessness, that is your by-name list. Um, Most people experiencing homelessness are known to somebody in a community. They're getting services somewhere. Uh, the problem is very few people are known to everybody working on homelessness in that community. And what that means is you, Vicky, might be assisting someone with one thing and I might be assisting that person with something completely different the next day. And and neither of us has any idea that we're talking to the same person. And that means we're missing an opportunity to collaborate and marshal our collective resources uh, in service of a long-term solution for that person. And so the first thing we ask communities to do when they join Built for Zero is bring all the data sets they have together and that means every program every agency in your community that is dealing with people experiencing homelessness needs to share that data in a a respectful and privacy protected way uh, that that uh, with the consent of that individual but you need to get that data into one place so that every time that person is showing up anywhere in the system we all know about it and we can all have a conversation about what is needed to move that person further down a path to permanent housing that person then needs to be assessed in in a way that is common across the community. So everyone's going to be assessed the same way. What that means is you're not going to assess that person one way and make certain decisions about how to administer resources that you might control. But then if they show up at my door, I'm going to make different decisions about what kinds of resources they're eligible for. and You know, pretty soon, it's about who has the best case manager or who's connected to the program that's best connected and that's how you get help in the community. What we wanna build instead is a system where no matter where that person shows up, uh, we're all gonna assess them and respond uh, the same way according to some uniform and evidence-based criteria we've set up as a community for how we're going to support people. So once you get someone into the system and you assess them, you now have what amounts basically to a, a personal uh, file on that individual with their name, their history. You can really start to know them and see them as a human being. You know, Are they a veteran? Uh, are, are they w- with a family? Uh, perhaps they're disconnected from their family, but there's actually family that could help. Um, Are they a senior citizen It might be eligible for certain kinds of elder care resources because of that? These are the kinds of, of pieces of information that actually allow you to start to do something about the problem that that person is experiencing. And when we can all look at that information together and have a collective conversation, ideally with that person about what they need to get back into housing and how we might help them access that thing, Uh, communities find they can move much, much faster.
0: You talk about Built for Zero allowing systems to become systems by integrating all the actors in a community behind a shared aim. Why is this?
1: In a lot of places I think we assume there's something called a housing system or a homelessness system, Um, you know, some kind of integrated effort that somebody has their eye on, some ball that somebody's already carrying. That, in most communities, even around the world, turns out not to be true what we have are various funding streams and various different agencies that may touch people experiencing homelessness in some way or another but in in most communities around the the world even in you know the most developed and and well-resourced democracies it is no single person's job <laughs> to see to it that homelessness is being ended in that community. It, it is like everyone's job, and the, the, the real upshot of that is when something is everyone's job, it usually ends up being no one's job. Most communities have lots and lots of programs uh, meant to address homelessness, and sometimes really good programs. You know, you may have a, a, a housing program where you are, Vicky, in Berlin, I don't know. You know, Maybe there's a, a program that whose job is to connect People experiencing homelessness to permanent housing, and maybe if you ask them, you know, show me your outcomes, uh, they could produce data on the number of, of clients they've seen that year, and the percentage of those clients they've been able to move into permanent housing, and the retention rates, how long those clients are staying in permanent housing, and and, and you know, data on their cost efficiency. But if you wanted to ask across Berlin how would we actually end homelessness across this whole community, you're led very quickly to a different set of questions that really have much less to do with is any one particular program getting good outcomes for the people it happens to be seeing and much more to do with is the collective work of all of these programs together actually adding up to a result (laughs) in the form of fewer people experiencing homelessness across this whole community. And you cannot ask that question without some kind of integrated system design and a shared data set that would actually allow you to even know how many people are experiencing homelessness in that community at any given time. So it is a a tremendous shift, I think, for a lot of communities to move from seeing themselves as a collection of programs, sometimes extraordinary programs with wonderful reputations to a collective effort programs working against a shared number and trying to drive that shared number down. And there's a lot at stake here for, for everyone involved. You know, if I'm running an excellent program, that's getting great outcomes for the people I serve. One of the easiest ways to do that is to be really, really choosy about the people I agree to serve, right? I might say, Hey, I've got to keep my outcomes up. And so there is an incentive for me to only work with uh, the least vulnerable people in this community. Uh, or the people most capable of navigating the system on their own or advocating for themselves, or the people for whom the most money (laughs) is available to support, right? I can get great outcomes as a program by doing that. But if I start to ask, as a program, what choices would I have to make to make sure I'm making my maximum contribution to a reduction in homelessness across this whole community, that might force me to make very different decisions as a program that might actually be much harder and mean that my program-level outcomes are going to suffer, at least initially, in service of creating better community-level outcomes. So you, you can start to see when there's funding and competitive tendering and all these different things that your listeners will be familiar with at stake, it's, it's not a given uh, for, for these programs that they should all agree to come together and work together on a shared set of data and a shared aim at the population level. Uh, so that is the, that's is the—that's a huge piece of work that communities have to do if they want to work as a system, is they have to say, our real goal, are we all agreed that our shared aim is to end homelessness across this community, not to end homelessness for the individuals in our respective programs or agencies. If you can get people to say yes to that, the world is open to you. There are now so many strategies that become available uh, to that collection of agencies that were not available before. Uh, that will allow you to drive population level reductions over time. That shift from a program mindset to a a community mindset or a systems mindset demands a kind of inclusivity that was not present before, right? When every program is is kind of, you know, every program for itself or kind of a free-for-all for for funding and things like that, um, there are lots of people that can fall through the cracks because there is no system-wide view. Uh, when you start to pull your data and and uh, take steps to ensure that actually there are no holes in your data, that every single person is covered and accounted for, by definition, you're sort of creating or engendering a, a kind of inclusivity in how you're understanding the problem and also who you're all collectively agreeing to be accountable for.
0: So once all the community actors are aligned to this common aim, they can then build a shared data set to see the dynamics of what's happening in their community over time. When you have that kind of
1: information, you know, you have have real time or, or, or at least monthly data on, you know, how many people are experiencing homelessness in front of us today, but also who's brand new to that situation? You know, who's here this month that we hadn't seen last month? Uh, what do we know about them? How many of those people are experiencing homelessness for the very first time? How many people people are um, people we've already housed and now it, it, they've fallen out of housing? It hasn't worked, and they're back in our system. Maybe there are some people that we've seen before, but we sort of lost track of them for a while. But now they're kind of back on the radar. As you see spikes or or um, or ebbs in those various types of data points, those data points begin to suggest different types of interventions for your community. Uh, to to deal with inflow among people that you've already housed and are now back experiencing homelessness, they're back in your system, uh, you may not need any kind of major structural intervention to solve a problem like that. It, what you might think about doing is calling together your housing providers and saying, what are our retention practices? How, what does case management or service delivery look like? in these apartments, let's all review best practices and make sure we're aligned with the evidence base here. Let's see if we can improve housing retention. That might be actually a fairly easy problem to solve uh, at a community level. If you see people coming back onto your radar after you've lost track of them for periods of time, you know, you may not really have an inflow problem. You may have sort of a data capture problem, right? That may mean that your coverage, your data coverage is not actually as good as you think it is. Uh, so you don't actually have a comprehensive picture because you're losing track of people. So you might do some some qualitative work with those individuals and say, where were you during these last few months when we you know, didn't have track of you? Could you tell us a bit about what your life was like during that time? And that might show you places where you actually need to be capturing data or, or places you need to be doing street outreach that you're currently not going. And that can help you improve your data practices. So these things are things that can start to bend the curve on something like inflow without requiring major policy changes or structural changes. They just require communities themselves to begin to act differently. Now, it's also true that you might see a spike in inflow among people that are experiencing homelessness for the very first time. And this is a great place to begin to explore broader upstream interventions you might begin to look at several different things. One is um, upstream systems where these people are coming from most directly. In the US, that's going to lead you to places like the criminal justice system, the foster care system, uh, the healthcare system. And you might begin to ask those individuals, tell me about your experience in that system right before you became homeless. You know, maybe, Uh, what you will find is everybody is coming from one hospital. We've seen this in certain U.S. communities. Or maybe everyone coming out of the criminal justice system into homelessness, several of them seem to have the same discharge worker. Well, you could go talk to that individual, or you could go – do some qualitative uh, surveying or design work at that hospital to try to figure out, tell me about your discharge practices. What are you doing to make sure that you're not discharging people into homelessness? Again, maybe these are holes we can close without major structural interventions. So that data allows you to begin to operate in much more nuanced ways in the realm of things that you as a community have the ability to control. Um, And then finally, you get to this place where there are lots of things you might not have the ability to control. You may begin to identify policy challenges. And these are well-known, right? Most communities don't have enough Affordable housing. Most communities don't have sufficient uh, social services and mental health support uh, for people uh, living in low income housing. Um, Most communities don't have effective uh, eviction prevention or landlord mediation for people that fall into rental arrears uh, because of some kind of health crisis or something. So these are things that you can start to say hey, we're seeing in this data a significant number of people falling into homelessness because they were evicted and nobody stepped in to help them or because they had a one-time health crisis in other words they they long-term have the ability to pay rent but they had this one-time health crisis and in the united states that can be very very expensive and there was no recourse no no place to clear those costs and so they lost their housing as well you know these are discrete policy uh, levers that can be pulled, right? I mean, these are ways we can redesign public systems or reroute public money. Or the most obvious one in the US, once we learned housing first, you know, it became obvious that rather than investing all this public money in treatment programs and all these things, what we should be doing is investing money in housing vouchers and paying people's rent. And there were huge policy shifts at the federal level to make housing subsidy available for people experiencing homelessness. And that played a huge role in our ability to get more people off the street. But none of these conversations, whether they take you way, way upstream to the halls of Congress, or just a little bit upstream to the, you know, discharge meeting agenda of a single discharge worker at the local Mm -hmm. hospital. None of these conversations are possible with any degree of nuance. If you don't have that real time by name data that can actually offer you an avenue into understanding where people are coming from what they need, and what specifically might have prevented them from falling into homelessness.
0: You're listening to the International Civil Society Centre's Futures and Innovation Podcast. This episode is part of our 2020 Innovation Report on Civil Society Innovation and Urban Inclusion. Another systems dimension is all the agencies, organizations, and people who touch the problem. I think you've called these compound protagonists before, um, and they're <laughs> involved in the delivery of Built for Zero. Who are all these different actors? In the
1: United States, there tend to be kind of a handful of players that really have to be at the table. Um, one is something called the continuum of care. Uh, in other communities, this might be your your municipal funding agency or some sort of local authority that is tasked with managing and administering funds related to homelessness in the u s uh, that tends to be a single nonprofit in each community uh, that is tasked with administering federal homelessness dollars to programs in that community that is obviously i think a, a natural leverage point uh, in this system because they control funding and they have relationships with most programs. Another is your public housing authority this you know might be a, a housing agency or housing authority in your Community, this is the group that tends to uh, manage existing government rental assistance programs. So it could be some kind of rent benefit uh, in your community. It could be housing vouchers, could be uh, the agency that's tasked with overseeing all your social housing. It just depends on how your local system is set up. But whoever's controlling those resources needs to be at the table. Healthcare needs to be at the table, uh, especially uh, if you have one or a handful of of clinics or safety net hospitals or public hospitals or, you know, depending on uh, your system where most people experiencing homelessness are receiving their care, uh, it would really behoove you to try to bring those folks into this conversation as quickly as possible and recognize that housing and health are two connected pieces of, of one problem and often have overlapping populations. And then some more niche players who are really, really important. Um, Street outreach workers, most communities uh, around the world have some, whether it's an NGO or a government uh, group, but but somebody who is paid or contracted to send people out on the street on a regular basis and interact with, engage with people experiencing homelessness, uh, ideally in a way that is focused on moving those folks along a pathway to permanent housing, but at a minimum, just folks that are going out on the street looking for people uh, who may, be, may not be coming into shelters or other kinds of services and engaging them. Um, and then the, the last one is you need your major nonprofit service providers, shelter providers, housing providers at the table as well, because they have so much of the data that you're going to need uh, to really get your arms around this problem. Now, you'll notice a couple of groups that I haven't mentioned, but in some contexts, they're very, very important. Um, that could be city uh, or county government. Uh, so, you know, sometimes having uh, the mayor's office or council or, or whatever it is in your system at the table can be very important, especially if these programs are funded uh, through that agency. Uh, in the, the states, uh, that tends to be more of a nice to have, less of a, a an essential to have. Mayors have a little bit less control over this particular problem than we would think. And then, you know, another uh, group that can be very, very important to have at the table, some communities is faith groups, uh, religious organizations, especially uh, in communities where religious organizations are providing a bulk of the services. You know, but what you basically want to do, I mean, whatever context you're in, is sort of say, who are all the people that have some role in managing what happens to people experiencing homelessness? And if those people are not at the table... Uh, then you're missing someone you would need to truly act as a coordinated system. And so what would it take to get that person or that agency to come to a weekly meeting with the rest of us, start to put our data together uh, and look at this information together and make some shared decisions? There are any number of unusual suspects that are community specific. And as you and your community start kind of going down that list, you're going to identify groups that make sense in your community that might not even exist in another community. And that's fine. You know, this this methodology is meant to be adapted uh, to to local context. The the key question is, who touches homelessness? Are all the people that touch this problem in some way at the table and agreeing to a shared aim getting to zero on this population?
0: But beyond improving collaboration, you also have some inspiring ideas to improve how we communicate about this collaboration, which I think will really resonate with our listeners you've heard me say how many different players
1: need to be at the table if you want to combat homelessness in your community effectively. I often refer to these entities as co- a compound <laughs> protagonists uh, because I think for too long, we have sort of uh, allowed all these different agencies and programs to act in their own vacuums. It's sort of this old nonprofit myth that we just need to get the right organization. And then that organization could sort of solve this problem alone or on its own or uh, well if only government would invest the, the appropriate money or whatever then government could solve this problem or, or whatever it might be and the truth is you actually need many many different actors working together to solve a problem this complex um, and we don't have good models for telling stories uh, about those kinds of coalitions we look for heroes we look for single actors that the whole thing turned on. And this is just not that kind of problem. And so as we move into this kind of work, we need to look for and embrace a new vocabulary that will allow us to um, sort of widen our aperture and see the work of many, many different players and integrate the work of many, many different players.
0: What is your actual mechanism for bringing all these stakeholders together and the kind of coaching support that Built for Zero builds around them?
1: In Built for Zero, communities join what we call the Built for Zero Collaborative. This is our vehicle for helping you bring a team together and start to do this work. Um, there are a couple key agencies that need to agree to sign up in your community. And if if all of those agencies agree, then you come to us together and you say, we're all on board, we'd like to join this effort. The first thing we'll do is we'll assign you a coach, uh, what we call an improvement advisor, someone who's skilled in in the science of quality improvement. Um, This is, you know, running really rapid cycle, small tests of change and and doing iteration. Um, That coach is going to be dedicated to your community uh, for the life of your time with us. Um, We're then going to ask you to bring that team uh, twice a year to a huge in-person convening with every other team in Built for Zero. We call this a learning session. It happens over two to three days uh, in a different city each time. Uh, those teams are going to sit at their own tables and be put through their their paces, really. You know, if you don't have quality data yet, we're going to put you in the quality data room and you're going to work with other communities also trying to get to quality real-time data, uh, understanding where the gaps in your data are, uh, understanding what other communities have done already to solve those gaps, working with your coach to figure out what you're going to try. And then you're going to set a goal together for how how close to quality data you're going to get over the next six months. And we're going to send you home to work on that goal. And we're going to meet with you virtually every two weeks to see how it's going and to continue to coach and advise you and your team along that journey. You know, that process of kind of bringing your team together, providing some outside neutral facilitation that can help you all learn to work together and putting you in in, in an environment with other communities that creates some social pressure, some sense of, well, let's look like what our peers are doing. You know, maybe we thought we were doing a good job, but now that we see how we stack up against other communities, we feel a little pressure to actually perform better. All of those things can be very useful in helping teams learn to work together, um, where previously maybe they had had only worked uh, in silos. So that's a bit about our model uh, and how it works in the U.S. You know, the work we do internationally. You know, we we support some wonderful partners in Canada. Uh, in Australia in the UK that are, are, are trying to launch some of this work um, you know and we just sort of guide them in those skill sets and then they are, are trying to raise up local uh, coaches from their own countries who could do that work directly with communities um, based on our model but also their intimate knowledge of their own local context and what's going to be most effective in their cultures. So that's sort of how it works for us.
0: So Built for Zero also has a range of private sector partners, mm-hmm. including from the housing industry and technology sectors. Who are they?
1: The, the US system has some, some drawbacks and also some tremendous advantages. And one of the incredible advantages here is we have a, a thriving philanthropy sector and sort of always have. Um, and this means that, well, government money tends to be used for things like services and to actually pay for housing and, and those kinds of things. Um, there is also a, a sector that stands ready to fund innovation and uh, new models and and pilot projects and, and all these kinds of things. And so um, I think we have really been able to benefit from that, uh, recognizing the need for this kind of coordinator role among all these communities, uh, sort of a backbone function, a mobilizing function, a training function. We have been able to go to private philanthropy and say, government is funding our communities, would you fund us to help those communities make that government funding more effective in what they're really trying to produce? Um, And we have found some really willing partners in that. Uh, I'll just name our our core partners. There are five core partners um, that are all in on this work for for very significant amounts of money, but also making their staff and their Uh, Skills and their technologies available uh, to us. Um, One is Kaiser Permanente, which is a huge national um, private health insurer. They're a nonprofit health insurer um, here in the States. Of course, we have a a private insurance system as your listeners will probably know, and it has a lot of drawbacks, but um, one of the advantages is is this insurer uh, really sees its mission as the health of whole communities and is willing to invest a lot of money uh, philanthropically in that effort. And so Kaiser Permanente is at the table. Uh, Quicken Loans, which is a national mortgage uh, issuer, uh, helps uh, people with the home buying process. Uh, And as part of that work, they are also heavily invested in our work to end homelessness among veterans specifically. Uh, The Home Depot Foundation. So some of your listeners, if they're in the US or Canada, will have heard of the Home Depot, which is a large hardware and and, uh, home goods supply Uh, chain uh, supply store, Uh, their foundation is heavily invested in our work, especially in large cities, trying to drive reductions in large cities. Uh, The Balmer Group, which is a a large and very, very innovative uh, philanthropic effort uh, to uh, improve uh, new models of community coordination. Um, And then uh, the Tableau Foundation, Uh, Tableau, the, the, of course, uh, internationally leading um, data visualization software company, uh, that has through their, their private foundation made significant funding available to us, but also software grants and training to help communities uh, uh, sort of take advantage of the data analytics sets that they're building through Built for Zero. All of our work to help communities dashboard uh, their data, uh, you know, visualize their analytics. You know, we maintain live dashboards for every single community in this initiative, as well as the communities we work with around the world. Uh, that that are showing them in real time how many people are homeless, uh, where are those folks coming from? Uh, you know what are your exit rates and housing placement rates look like? Uh, how is that comparing to your recent you know averages and and, and what's kind of normal in your system? Uh, can we make it easy for you to see when when you're really driving improvement versus when you're just seeing kind of normal variation and all of this ability is donated by Tableau uh, to us and to our communities, and so it's an incredible partnership and investment that they've made in really um, helping to bring data um, and data software into this field. So these, these funders are sort of at the table in a big way. Um, and as I said, they, they invest money in our operating costs uh, so that the cost to communities can be low or, 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 or nothing in most cases. Um, but they also make their staff available, uh, their marketing departments, their data analytics teams, uh, their government relations and lobbying teams available. So it's sort of a whole a whole company commitment, if mm. you will, um, to enabling the work of Built for Zero. Uh, in these communities and I think that's something really innovative about the model we've been able to cultivate um, and much much credit to our strategic partnerships team which I think is is maybe the best in the uh, in the field um, at, at just bringing these partners to the table and and knowing what they need and, and helping to ensure that they can make their fullest contribution
0: you know it's clearly a complex set of stakeholders that you're working with but also an incredibly rich resource and, and collaboration that you're able to benefit from as well in, in terms of support
1: yes that's right that's
0: right uh, so what kind of inclusive outcomes has built for zero and the communities in built for zero achieved so far
1: you know when you're working with any data set uh, there are challenges to inclusivity as well that you have to keep in mind in how you work with and look at that data i think in the us race is is one of the most compelling as, as i mentioned before um you know homelessness is is not an equal opportunity uh, problem in this country. Uh, it is a problem uh, that uh, systemically plagues uh, Black and Native Americans more than other groups. And if you are not attending to that in your data set specifically, and saying, "Wait a minute, we don't just want to see reductions. We actually want to make sure we're seeing equitable reductions <laughs> that certain groups aren't being disproportionately left behind." Um, then you know your your dreams of inclusive data are are maybe more illusory. Than you would care to admit, uh, and that requires a hard look at at yourself and your own system, and you know, why is our system producing these kinds of results, and and do I play a role in that? Much as I may want to consider myself a progressive person or someone who's not, you know, racist or or, or you know the different ways we we try to think of ourselves, um, you know, I'm embedded in this system that's producing racist outcomes, and so I've got to be willing to to behave differently and ask what I might be able to do differently. And the data can support you in having those conversations, I think, in a way that takes some of the charge out of the air. And I, I you know, we're just really starting to lean into this on race, which is part of why I'm talking about it so much. It's something we overlooked mm-hmm. for a long time. And I think it is um, a, a recent challenge to the inclusivity of our work and something we are really working to sort of say, wait a minute, how do we make sure um, that we can support communities in driving racially equitable outcomes uh, in these systems. So, you know, inclusivity is sort of one of those things you're, you're never quite done, you know, it's 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 never, aha, now we have a perfect inclusive approach to this problem. It's more like a guiding um, star that you have to sort of constantly be chasing after, um, because as you look at your data, you know, even once, you know, maybe you're producing racially equitable outcomes, but then you'll dig deeper into your data and maybe realize that Um, That is true until you start to look at the overlap of race and sexuality uh, or or race and and, um, geography or or whatever else it might be. And so you sort of constantly have to be asking yourself, how could we make this effort even more inclusive and even more inclusive Uh, and sort of willing to talk about it, not be so ashamed by it or so afraid of being wrong um, that you're not willing to be transparent about what's going on in your data at any given time. Uh, We've got uh, right now about 14 communities that have gotten all the way to zero on veteran homelessness and uh, three communities that have gotten all the way to zero on chronic homelessness, which is that long-term homelessness among really your sickest, most vulnerable populations. These are the first communities in the country, um, really in the world, uh, to do this in a meaningful and measurable way. you know, it took us a whole year just to get one community there. And since then the rate has kind of snowballed and started to accelerate, which is encouraging. Um, We also have several communities in the confirmation process right now. And so I suspect by the time your listeners are hearing this, uh, we will be um, closer to about 20 communities that have gotten to zero for one or the other of these populations. Our goal over the next four years is to get to a place where we could say 50 communities had gotten to zero for at least some population, Um, but that 10 communities had gone even further and ended homelessness for just all single adults, um, whether they're veterans or chronic or whoever else, and that five communities would have gone even further than that and just actually become the first five communities in the whole world to end homelessness for everyone. Just no more homelessness in this community. We think we'll have the first community to do that sometime over the next year. Um, And that's very, very exciting. And I think that is a moment and you can hold us accountable to that. I hope you'll come back to me and ask me (laughs) how we're doing, but that will be a moment I think for all of us to sort of sit up and take notice and say, okay, we're really onto something here. Like something unusual has really happened. A A community has ended homelessness for everyone. Um, if we can get to that place, I, I, what I hope is that people will be willing to embrace the idea that this new way of working uh, with more, more sophisticated data and, and collaboration uh, is actually something we all need to embrace uh, and that it's, it's really proven itself out and, and just needs to become part of the way we do business uh, in this field. That's our, our hope, is that these results begin to engender a tipping point where um, other communities and other countries become open to what they might be able to learn from this way of working.
0: Yeah, show what's possible and show that it's sustainable as well.
1: That's right. And I should say about 90% of those communities are sustaining their, their results. So communities that have gotten to zero, we, we continue to track every month how they're doing. And about 90% of communities that have gotten to zero are still, are still holding that result. We have to be asking hard questions in this field about, are we sustaining positive outcomes when we reach them? Because if not, it, then you know what was it all for? I, I don't think the end game is to end homelessness and walk away and move on to something else and let the problem rear its head again. I think the end game is to build systems that are so transformed that they can actually keep this problem down over time, even as society and its conditions change. I often remind people, at least in the United States, it, it is not true that we have sort of always had mass homelessness uh, in the form that we, we see it now. I mean, homelessness in its current iteration is really sort of a product of the 1980s. I mean, it's it's it, it hasn't been with us in this way for very long. And if it's true that we didn't always have this problem in this way, why would it not also be true that we could get back (laughs) to a time when we didn't have this problem right i mean it's Mm. it's we can solve problems that we didn't always have i mean by definition that is is true um now will inequity persist in our society have we always had homelessness in some kind of form yes a lot of times sort of government created through you know mass displacement of indigenous people or um, dispossession of black landholders or you name it i mean we've created we we've we've found no shortage of ways to create homelessness in this country over the years but homelessness the way it looks today you know half a million people on any given night in cities across the country disproportionately living with disabilities and mental illness i mean really some of the most vulnerable subsets of our society just getting walked past every day uh, it, you know that didn't used to be true in our cities And we have got to open our imaginations to the possibility that we can make that a thing that is untrue once again. And I think that's what Built for Zero communities are doing, is they're showing a very concrete way forward to make that possible.
0: So COVID-19 has obviously been a huge influence on the work of many organizations over the past few months. Could you talk a bit about how you've had to adapt your response in relation to the pandemic recently, please?
1: Initially, In the first few months when things really kind of spun up, we pivoted all of our work with communities uh, to help them respond. So we set sort of a short-term aim, uh, which was really about helping communities prevent avoidable deaths among people experiencing homelessness, protect their sort of system staff, many of whom in this country at least have not had access to personal protective equipment and proper training. And then also to limit the unnecessary hospitalization of people experiencing homelessness who often end up in the hospital just because there's nowhere else for them to go or nowhere else for them to be sent or discharged to. But at a time like this, when every hospital bed really counts. We wanted to make sure people weren't ending up in the hospital just because there was no other place for them to shelter. So this was was kind of uncharted territory for our work. We used the same techniques that we've used to help communities drive reductions in homelessness to help them very quickly think about what sorts of quarantine and isolation facilities they would need, what kinds of, of resourcing and staffing they would need. And then as these needs became clear, we tried to leverage our, our networks and our staff and just really any anything we could to bring communities access to what they needed. And now there's the work of trying to help communities get as many people as possible who might be vulnerable to this disease in Inside And using this, leveraging this moment to create further urgency around permanent housing and getting people access to permanent housing, which is ultimately the the only thing that can can really protect somebody is the ability to just stay inside and isolate. Most of our community systems have been caught off guard in their ability to move people into even existing housing during this time. The lack of nimble action structures and the lack of good data on who's out there and and what they might need has, I think, sort of exposed huge elements of this problem that are about much more than money or housing supply. They're really about, do you have kind of a nimble command center structure that can take action quickly? And we, I, I think, have the advantage in that that's what we have been trying to help communities build all along and the kind of problem we've been telling them homelessness is for a very, very long time, that it's a complex and dynamic problem and it requires dynamic action structures. But this was sort of a moment where I think we really had to help communities put that into practice. And also where we saw many communities that that we haven't worked with really struggle to do that.
0: You're listening to the International Civil Society Center's Futures and Innovation Podcast. This episode is part of our 2020 Innovation Report on civil society innovation and urban inclusion. One of the innovation dimensions with our case studies that we're looking at is how these approaches are disrupting the status quo. So starting with the wider system or sector level disruption, how would you describe this for Built for Zero?
1: I think we're so used to thinking of disruption in the context of somebody coming up with something that's sort of never been imagined before you know like uber or something like you could just get a taxi from your smartphone now like it's it's a whole new idea and that's what's so disruptive about it is that it challenges everything else i think in some ways the ways in which built for zero and the kind of things we're trying to do in the world are disruptive are not that they're like very very common sense they're almost so simple and that's what's disruptive about them like the idea that you should just know every homeless person's name (laughs) you know you should open a file on each individual and see what it would take to provide them housing that housing itself is the solution to homelessness i mean these ideas they are disruptive but in some ways they're so simple it's almost like the thing we are disrupting is this impulse to massively overcomplicate a problem that actually is very straightforward. People who are experiencing homelessness need housing, and they need it as fast as possible, and they need it sort of in the right arrangement and measure to suit their their needs. And that's kind of the big idea here. I think another thing that has been disruptive is this idea that you don't wait for a 15-year longitudinal study on every single idea you want to try, but that instead you may have to have a methodology that allows you to move more quickly and iteratively than that. So this idea of using improvement science, running very small tests of change in short cycles, seeing what you can learn from them, iterating them, adapting them, and then scaling things that begin to work, has proven a, a, a much faster way for communities to figure out how to solve the problem than sort of waiting on more traditional research. And, and that has been disruptive as well in its own right. It's also been, I think, disruptive to funding streams and, and kind of what we're used to, to paying for. Um, it's been disruptive to, to elected officials and how they're used to making policy. People have gotten very used to the idea that we need incredibly specialized knowledge <laughs> to tackle social problems. And I think that the disruptive idea that we are putting forward is actually, what if we need very personal and very intuitive knowledge to tackle social problems? And we need to make this less about the politics of Washington and more about the natural problem solving capabilities of people on the ground in in, uh, communities across the country. And we need to put the power to reimagine systems back in their hands kind of let them run with that. And I think that has been, in some ways, a very challenging battle to fight. But obviously, I think the kinds of results that these local problem solvers are starting to get, it feels very much like the thing that needed to happen. When we look back in, I don't know, let's say maybe in in 15 or 20 years, let's imagine homelessness has sort of ended in this country, which is very much the way we, we try to think about our work and the urgency we try to bring to our work. I think that the measure of that disruption will be the extent to which we have sort of thriving prevention and well-being systems in place for vulnerable people instead of kind of a homelessness response system whose job is to house people once they've already hit the street.
0: I think the last thing I want to touch on here which I was also really surprised to read about actually was that Despite this national commitment to addressing the problem of homelessness, there was actually no clear defined end state of either what success in achieving that end goal looked like or, or sustainability.
1: When we started this work, there was a federal imperative for all communities to to try to end homelessness, but there was no way of measuring that or sort of definition of what an end to homelessness would look like. Uh, In other words, you have to do this very hard thing, but you have no idea how you'll know if you got there. And I think one of our beliefs is that you can't wait until the end to know if you've got there. (laughs) So what was important to us was to build a definition or a measurement of zero that was not so complicated that you couldn't just take a pulse on it on a very, very regular basis to say, are we making progress? Are the things we're trying working? Do we need to course correct? If so, how? So we built a definition of zero that we call functional zero. It starts with the assumption that we are not, at least not yet, building a world where no one will ever become homeless ever again. We don't have the ability to do that quite yet. But that when people do become homeless, we wanted that to be very short and very rare. And we wanted to make sure a community always had the capacity to respond to that homelessness very, very quickly. And so functional zero is is really, really simple. For veterans and other what we call fixed populations, which means you're, you are that thing. You were always that thing, right? I'm a homeless veteran. I'm a homeless uh, young person. I'm a homeless female, whatever it might be. It goes like this. You can never have more people in that category experiencing homelessness than you have proven you can move into actual permanent housing in a given month, like a routine month. So if we have a track record over the last six months, say of housing permanent housing, 10 veterans every month, then we can never have more than 10 veterans experiencing homelessness. Otherwise, we're behind our ability to solve that problem in a month. That's it. We have 10 veterans. We need to be able to house 10 veterans every month. That's it. I think communities have taken this and run with it, and, and several communities have met that definition and then continued to drive that number down, 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 even below their kind of routine housing averages, which is really inspiring us to think about whether just kind of a hard zero might actually be possible in some of these communities. So with chronic homelessness, and we share this definition with the federal government, it's just zero, or if not zero, then either three people, so so a little bit of flex, right, just never more than three people, or 0.1% of your total homeless population. It's basically whichever number is greater. In almost every community we work with, almost every city in America, that will work out to just three people. Those two definitions, that's it. They're fairly simple. They basically amount to saying this, no one could ever be homeless for a very, very long period of time. And then when people are homeless for a short period of time, we define that period of time against the number of people you can house in a single month. And that's it. The question of what a community has to learn or get better at is always answerable by the question, how close are we (laughs) to those measures and what would it take to get closer? And that prevents us from getting caught up in lots of other learning that might be valuable, but not necessarily relevant to getting to our goal.
0: And in terms of self-disruption for community solutions as an organization, why is Built for Zero a departure from what went before?
1: Oh, that's a great question. Our organizational history, it's a 30-year history, and in some ways just is a history of kind of disrupting ourselves. that That's sort of a grandiose way to talk about it. We usually use the language of just failing forward. <laughs> it's sort of a history of doing something that turns out to be really exciting and then realizing that it, it still represents a failure to solve the real problem <laughs> we wanted to solve, and then kind of saying, okay, what can we learn from this and moving on? So, So the first big innovation in our organization was to Shift away from offering shelter to building permanent affordable housing. We did that for 20 years. I mean, we built almost 4,000 units of affordable housing across the city of New York, and we were winning awards and all kinds of things. We went by a different name at that time. But at some point, staff in our organization had to come to terms with the fact that on our way into work every morning, we were still seeing the same people homeless on our streets, in some cases, like around the corner from our buildings. So if you were lucky enough to get into one of our buildings, you had great outcomes. But homelessness wasn't going down. In fact, it was going up in in New York at the time. And so great innovation, this kind of housing, but it it doesn't seem to be quite enough to just build housing. And so at that point, we sort of shifted into trying to understand what does it take to get these very vulnerable folks to come into our housing. And we launched a program in New York, and then later took that national through something called the 100,000 Homes Campaign. And this was all about accelerating housing placement. Could you speed up a community's housing process? From 2010 to 2014, the 100,000 Homes campaign ran, and the goal was to move 100,000 chronically homeless people into permanent housing. And communities who participated in that effort did that. And at the end of that effort, they had tripled their monthly housing rates, but chronic homelessness had only gone down like 20%. And we had to kind of face into this thing again of like, oh my God, we've we've failed to learn the lesson again. <laughs> we've moved from just building more housing just speeding up people's access to housing. But we still failed to do the thing we really intended to do, which is to end homelessness altogether. And that's kind of when we launched Built for Zero in 2015. We said, we're going to design a whole initiative around this different question, which is what would it take instead of just counting up to some kind of big housing number to actually count down all the way to zero. So we made the goal, we made the end state actual thing we intended to achieve as an organization, which was the end of homelessness. And communities sort of signed up far fewer than had worked with us on previous efforts were willing to take this leap, but communities signed up to say, we'll uh, try to figure that out with you. We'll take that plunge. And uh, it took us a year to get our first community all the way to zero. Rockford, Illinois got to zero on veterans in that first year. But since then we've continued to learn and here we are four or five years later, closing in on 20 communities getting all the way to zero. So I think we are finally asking the right question for the first time in our organizational history, but it has required us to embrace many times over the fact that some of even our sometimes most celebrated accomplishments still in themselves represented failures to achieve our real aim and to be willing to disrupt those things or set them aside and try something different. And I'll just say, I have no doubt we'll have to do that again. Probably even some of the things I'm talking about on this podcast in a couple of years, if you come back to me, I will be able to tell you how some of the things that seem so important to us right now, our learning and our data have turned out to make those things obsolete or or less important than than other new learning. The most valuable thing uh, that most organizations can do is try to figure out where they need to be disrupting themselves um, and making sure they're not getting too comfortable.
0: Built for Zero's approach enables innovation and testing of new ideas by communities to improve the system. And the real-time person-specific data enables not just rapid response, but this kind of quick testing of fast feedback. Could you share some examples of how communities have done this?
1: Sure. The basic idea here comes from manufacturing. It's called the PDSA cycle, plan, do, study, act. And the idea is anybody, you know, once we're all clear on the problem, anyone can propose an idea for fixing it. And it doesn't matter who you are or how how senior you are or whatever. If we all agree that an idea is worth testing, then we will make a plan for how we're going to test it That plan needs to include a prediction of what we think is gonna happen. Then we'll execute the idea on a very small scale, right? So we won't run this across every community in Built for Zero or even across every program in a single community. Maybe we'll try your idea in one program for a couple weeks. Then we will study what happened, right? We'll look at the data. Did that problem we were trying to solve get better or change when we ran that idea? If so, how? If not, what is our hypothesis about why? And then at that point, communities have an action decision that they have to make, which is we talk about the three A's. Are they gonna abandon this idea? It didn't turn out to be useful. We should just let it go and try something new. Are they going to adapt this idea? Which often means, hey, there's some signs of progress here, we learned something, but maybe the idea wasn't quite perfect and we learned a way we actually wanna tweak it a little bit and try it again or, and usually you don't do this on the first try, are they gonna adopt the idea? Which means this is working so well that we should institutionalize this at scale across our whole system, across our whole community. That process turns out to be the thing that unlocks so much innovation, so much change in communities because it takes innovation out of the hands of experts right? You have to wait for someone else to figure this out and then tell you what to do. And it puts it in the hands of people on the ground. It also takes it out of the realm of sort of interminable timelines and says, what could you try by like next week, right? How could you make this idea so small that you could try it tomorrow (laughs) if you wanted and see what happened? And then we'll just build. From there, we've had communities ply this way of thinking in all kinds of different scenarios. Sometimes this is about something as simple as the meeting agenda. We had a community that had a quality by name list of everyone experiencing homelessness, right? So everybody in their community who was experiencing homelessness was known. But week after week, they would meet and sort of discuss what to do about it, and, and no one ever seemed to get housed off that list. So it's like, okay, you've got. Quality data, but that data isn't resulting in any kind of improvement toward your real goal. So, the test they sort of launched was we're going to restructure the meeting around individual people. We're going to go through the list person by person and say, what would it take to get this person housed? Instead of going through the, each unit that we have and say, who's the best candidate for this unit that happens to be available? And what they found was going through centering the person allowed this kind of problem solving. Maybe they didn't have a unit available. So, they had to think about what else would it take to get this person housed? What would, what are we gonna do since we don't have any units for this person? What else could we try? And they found they were able to start housing people that previously they would have said, oh, we don't have a resource for that person. There's just nothing we can do. So this very, very simple change of restructuring the meeting from what's the supply we have available, which is a structural point of view to who are the people in front of us and what would they need to be housed, which is an individual and a personal point of view became for them a massive leap forward. And then many, many other PDSAs were sort of built on top of that. And now that is a community that has a very person-centered system that is routinely helping people access housing and they're driving reductions in homelessness. So that's that's great. We've seen other communities apply this to things like street outreach, right? We're gonna run a, a small test of change in how often we visit A specific area and see if that improves our data coverage. We've had communities apply this to process improvement, right? We're going to test a new question on this form or new language for this question and see if we get different answers, right? Or see if that starts to fill in the gaps in what we need to know. Or a really common one is we're going to try putting two people who both have to process different pieces of this experience of getting someone housed, we're gonna co-locate them in in a shared office and see if that improves their ability to work together more quickly. And does that speed up the housing process? I mean, these are the kinds of really simple changes that don't require a new law (laughs) or a huge new allocation of resources or somebody in Washington or London or whatever it is to take action. They just require you or me or someone working in that system to say, I'm open, changing the way I work, and seeing what happens there. And often these small changes can produce really, really transformative results. Now there is a way of also using that quality data, that by name list as a way in to sort of figure out where should we be testing new ideas? What specific kinds of new ideas would be most important? There are always lots of ideas available, but how do we know where to focus? And the benefit of having this quality data is you can sort of say, well, hey, our analytics are showing that we have a really significant inflow problem right now. And so we really need to be focusing our tests on things that might address inflow. And actually, if we drill down into this inflow, we can see it's really coming from a specific place. And so maybe we need to be focusing our testing on whatever's going on in that place in particular. And then you can go and do some investigation and come up with some theories about what might be happening at that hospital or discharge site or shelter or whatever it is. And that might help you think about what kind of test you want to run. And then from there, you know, you have what you need to start taking action and evaluating those, those results. So the data really, really helps communities uh, to kind of focus their efforts. But again, at the end of the day, this is about common sense. It's not about waiting for a scientist or a government official somewhere else to tell you, what your community needs, it's about you taking responsibility for figuring that out and responding to it on your own. This methodology really makes that possible.
0: So moving on to scale and scalability, you've talked about how this exists within the program itself, starting with veteran and chronic populations and then expanding out from there. Talking about the kind of international scalability, you've now expanded Built for Zero to major cities in Canada and Australia. Where do you think the key success factors are to you having been able to achieve this?
1: Well, first, let me say, you know, we haven't expanded Built for Zero anywhere. There are some incredible partners in those countries that have basically made the heroic move of saying we would be willing to take responsibility for helping our country achieve these kinds of results? And would you just coach us on how to think about what you've done and how to adapt what you've done? So in Canada, we work with incredible leaders. I mean, really, really like best in class leaders at the Canadian Alliance to End Homelessness. And they are running an effort that they call Built for Zero Canada. But that is 100% on their initiative and we support and and coach their team. Um, But they're doing incredible work. And then in Australia, Uh, the Australian Alliance to End Homelessness has convened and made it possible for five of Australia's largest cities to start doing this kind of work as well. But so this is one of the, I think true for us, the, the signs of our success is that as we look around the world, we're not sort of expanding, you know, taking over the world as it were and ending homelessness in every community, but we're just starting to see peers kind of raised up in other places that are saying, we also want to work this way. We want to further develop this approach. And so we really see those folks as partners. And I think that is fundamental to our view of scale, It's not that community solutions can go globetrotting and sort of solve homelessness in a bunch of places we aren't from and don't understand, but that we have a methodology that is sufficiently adaptable that partners on the ground in those countries, in those contexts, could take those lessons and figure out how to apply them effectively in their communities. And We would like to strengthen these other partners to the point where they no longer need our coaching and instead we just become peers and are learning together. And I think that is the path to continuing to to provoke and spur our own learning as well, which is, is something I think is really exciting. And I think that's really happening in places like Canada where the Canadian Alliance very much has become just sort of a peer organization to us at this point And we're as likely to be adapting ideas they have come up with as as they are to be adapting ideas that we've come up with. And I feel really proud of that partnership and the fact that that's true. Thinking 20 years down the road, like success for us would look like we are just part of a broader community of partner institutions around the world that have sort of redefined this field and how this work gets done. And we're all learning together and having conversations about how you use data to iterate rapidly in service of of vulnerable people. What does it look like to take an idea (laughs) like Built for Zero and see it implemented successfully in a place like Adelaide, South Australia, right? A very different context than here. Well, there are some things that I think we have seen don't change all that much. In Adelaide, for example, they have pursued and successfully created a quality by name list of all the folks that are sleeping rough, so sleeping outside, that's the population they're focusing on first. They have built the infrastructure to keep that list up to date on a regular basis. They have used our tools and our sort of assessments as a way of doing that with relatively minor adaptations for context. So those things around, how do you get to quality data on this problem? How would you sort of bring a, a coalition together to work on this collaboratively? It turns out those tools are, are, are pretty well transferable in more or less their existing forms. We've seen this in Canada and the UK as well. but. When you start getting to this next question of what would you do with that data to drive reductions, the kinds of tests of change that are being run in places like Canada or Australia are often very different than the kinds of tests of change we see here. And that is because those contexts are really different. Their resource landscapes are different. So so the, the materials, the resources they're trying to optimize are structured fundamentally differently. The players at the table are sometimes different players. And so that I think is the beauty of this methodology. You know, The methodology is not take this resource and use it this way. The methodology is data-driven iteration <laughs> in your community, right? And that means that if you have a bunch of social housing stock you're trying to optimize, and I have a bunch of portable housing vouchers I'm trying to optimize, the rules about how we do that and the things that are gonna work might be really different. But the idea that we could test things at really small scale see if they work and then adopt them at scale is going to be more or less true in each place. So what we have really focused on is teaching our partners in those communities the rules of improvement science. You know, how do you run a PDSA cycle? How do you evaluate your data to see if anything's changed? How do you know when to abandon something versus when to adopt it at scale? And then we have kind of sat back and and let their ingenuity take over as they try to figure out the best things to try in their context. And I think we've been really, really impressed and excited by some of the results, which I think have given us confidence that this is a methodology that can be implemented anywhere, provided there is an openness to um, staying flexible and, and honoring local context. Right now, we are supporting partners in, I guess, one, two, three, like sort of like three and a half or four <laughs> countries out of the US, plus several partners that are not us in the US that are working on other populations like youth homelessness, for example. We've built a small practice around doing this. We are in the process of trying to distill and really capture what are the key elements for kind of running a large scale change campaign like this at scale. We're in exciting conversations with folks in Denmark, in Chile, in France, about um, helping them launch kind of national campaigns in those places using similar approaches. I really think this is a scalable way of working. What I will say is it has proven very, very difficult to fund this work outside of the US. What we would love to see is a small consortium of funders that are invested in in the idea of scaling this way of working internationally and that are providing Startup funding um, so that if we want to go work with another entity in another country that wants to learn how to do this, the burden of finding that funding to cover those costs is, is lighter. And that entity can sort of see the opportunity and get started quickly because right now, on average, it, it's taking a couple years to get something up and running. And I, I think that's just f- far slower than the pace of innovation needs to be.
0: So taking a bit of a step back and thinking about lessons for other organizations based on your experience in these complex urban settings, what are your key takeaways for others to think about?
1: I guess the the first thing I'd say is if you're working on a complex problem, you need to get really good at iteration and you need to make that your method. That is what we should all be doing, I believe, at this point, is giving up on this dream of the kind of gold standard best practice that somehow we're going to finally prove that if we all just do x or y we can make hunger or homelessness or whatever it is go away and instead recognizing that we're we're just going to have to become people that are really good at responding to changing information and iterating our way to success i guess the second takeaway is to do that you need real-time data if you don't have real-time data on whatever problem you're working on the problem is changing much, much faster than you are able to observe it. And that means you will never solve it, no matter how excited you feel about whatever thing you're trying. It's just never going to be nuanced enough and sophisticated enough to account for the fact that you can't see the problem as it moves and changes. So do what you have to do to get to real-time data or as close to it on whatever problem you're working on. And start small. I mean, if you collect data once a year on something, and you're not sure how you get to real-time data, let's start small. What would it take to collect it twice a year and then maybe quarterly and then monthly, right? And just allow yourself to kind of challenge your thinking step-by-step step until eventually you have built the systems you need to get data more quickly. Lower your threshold for what counts as data. Data does not have to be something collected by a scientist in a vacuum. Data can also be a survey that people administer to their neighbors. It can be an app on a smartphone that you take into to remote areas. I mean, data can be, there's just all kinds of ways of getting data. And then, you know, you can improve the quality of that data over time, but start with something, get the data you can as quickly as you can. You can always uh, find us at community.solutions, node.com, org. just community.solutions. Um, Built for Zero is right there on that page. You can get to it. If you're a community that is interested in joining Built for Zero, you can also go to a special site we've set up for that, which is joinbuiltforzero.org. Um, and your listeners can feel free to reach out to me um, at jmaguire, M-A-G-U-I-R-E at community.solutions. Be happy to speak with anybody. Um, or if you're, you know, looking to launch an effort like this and uh, you wanna work together or or think about what we can learn from each other, I'm happy to have that conversation as well.
0: Thanks so much, Jake. You've been very generous with your time answering my questions and then inviting more questions in future. So (laughs) thank you so much. Thank you. You can find links to more information and resources on both this innovation case study and the center's 2020 civil society innovation and urban inclusion Report in the podcast description. Many thanks to our producer, Julia Pazos, for all your hard work in making this podcast series happen. This podcast is kindly supported by the Konrad Adenauer Stiftung and its Strong Cities 2030 initiative, promoting global collaboration and knowledge sharing for sustainable urban development.